This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, we're found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Radhanath Swami. Uh, Swami is a monk in the Krishna Bhakti lineage. He is a member of the governing body of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Radhanath has been instrumental in founding a hospital in Mumbai, India. He's also involved in a program that feeds uh, street children uh, throughout India uh, every day. We'll talk more about that during the interview. And his latest book, The Journey Within, uh, which we'll also be discussing today. Radhanath, thank you so very much for coming on the show today. Thank you so very much, Dennis and Phil, for giving me the great honor and fortune to be on your wonderful show. Swami, we usually ask people at the beginning of our interviews to uh, tell the audience something about their their past and what brought them to their current uh, work and spiritual path. Uh, in your case, you had a particularly boring uh, journey, uh, <laughs> a typical Chicago boy's journey. But no, seriously, uh, if you had a particularly fascinating one that. You, you told so well in, in the journey uh, home, uh, but maybe you can give us, uh, for listeners who don't, are not familiar with you, uh, the sort of um, Cliff Notes version of how you came to where you are today. <laughs> Thank you. I was born December 7th, 1950 in Chicago, and I grew up in a village about 30 miles north of Chicago. And when I was a teenager in the 1960s, um, I was troubled by a lot of questions um, of racial discrimination and, you know, just so many apparent contradictions in, in what I was learning and what I was seeing. So I became a member of the civil rights movement in those days. I entered into the counterculture and ultimately, I came to a personal conclusion that if I really wanted to find a change in myself and in the world, I had to make a spiritual connection. And I was very much um, disturbed by so much hate in the name of God. And I came to a conclusion that there either I have to reject spirituality, religion altogether, or there must be a common essence that's unifying and, and, and beautiful and that can awaken love at the heart of every religion. And I really wanted to find that. So I went on a search and eventually I went to Europe with one friend and from London I hitchhiked because I didn't have any money through Europe and through Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, the Middle East, and finally made it to the Himalayas. It was about a six-month hitchhike journey. And then I became a wandering spiritual mendicant in India, an ascetic in the caves of the Himalayas. I was traveling with many um, holy people. Oftentimes I would be all alone, and I traveled to many holy places. And after some years, I came to a place called Brindaban, 
which is the place of Krishna, the place of pilgrimage where millions of devotees of Krishna go every year. And this is in 1971. And in that Vrindavan, which was actually a beautiful forest with the river Yamuna, <laughs> um, I, I was very much charmed by the path of bhakti, the path of a very, of, of awakening what we believe is the love of God that's within the heart of every living being, that we're not just the physical body or the ever-changing mind, but we're all the living force that's witnessing the life through the body and the mind. And that atma or that soul is a part of God. Inherent within every soul is love for God. And when you water the root of a tree, naturally that water extends to every part of the tree. Similarly, when we awaken that dormant love for God that's within our hearts, we naturally love our neighbors as ourself. And we see that everyone is our neighbor. The environment is our neighbor. All varieties of human and all species of life are our brothers and sisters. And to awaken love and to be an instrument of compassion is the goal of the path of bhakti or the path of devotion. And in Vrindavan, um, God is approached in a very personal way where we try to awaken an, et an eternal personal relationship with the all-loving, all-beautiful Lord, and, and that naturally extends to become a very personal compassion toward, toward all life and all beings. Mm -hmm. Swami, uh, and, uh, and, and it, was, it was in Vrindavan that I later met my guru, Srila Prabhupada, and his teachings very much moved me, and his lifestyle um, gave me something that was so precious that I wanted to share it with others, and that's what I do to this day. Uh, Swami, when uh, somebody is a spiritual aspirant and they are out looking for, uh, for spirituality, for, for development of consciousness, what do they look for in, in regard to finding a, uh, uh, a, a guru who is, uh, who is legitimate, who is authentic? What qualities does one look for in someone uh, uh, that, that is in that role? A, there's a beautiful verse in the Srimad Bhagavatam, Tatikshipa Karunaka Surada Sarvadehinam Ajata Satravasanta Sadavasadu Bhushanam. That the characteristics of enlightened people is that they're compassionate, they're they're tolerant, they're forgiving, they're they can be peaceful in in whatever situation may come. And they're genuinely the friends of, of other living beings. That their love for God permeates their words, their, their actions, and their thoughts. And when we meet people like this, we can understand that they're in a very enlightened state. And according to the tradition of, of Vedanta or, the, or India, um, Generally, a guru comes in a lineage or a parampara, 
of other great teachers who preserve original messages which are based on the holy texts of their particular spiritual tradition. Now, when you... A, a, yeah, go ahead. A, 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 a guru is one who, through their example or and through their words, really inspires and awakens the desire to love God, to serve God, and to, and to purify your own heart so that you can discover that love within yourself mm-hmm. and, and live within the world as an instrument of that love. You beautifully put. Phil? Yeah, <clears throat> Swami, speaking of, of gurus, um, yours uh, was Srila Prabhupada, who m- most people will remember as A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami, who started the what we call the Hare Krishna movement, or uh, International Society of Krishna Consciousness. And he, he would have passed only a few years after you met him, um, what um, what characteristics did you find in him when you met him uh, that uh, led you to become a, d- a disciple of his after having met many uh, holy people in your in your journey? I I did meet many holy people who really inspired me and who really I believed were enlightened souls and. With so much honor and respect, I I learned from them, but I kept searching. And in Vrindavan, um, this holy place I was speaking of, the concept of bhakti and the concept of Krishna Radha, the male and female aspect of the one supreme, all-beautiful, loving Lord, really captured my heart. So I actually became a devotee living in Vrindavan, and about six months later, um, Srila Prabhupada came there, mm. and um, I saw how he so authentically represented, through his words and through his life, um, this very, very beautiful ancient tradition that, that I had given my heart to. And his... His words, although in very simple language, they resolved so many confusions and apparent contradictions that were in my mind on, on so many subjects. And most of all, you know, I had met many great spiritual people in Vrindavan and Himalayas and other places that I learned from, but it was his compassion, his his very, very deep, profound concern and care for the body, mind, and especially the souls of others that really moved my heart to want to dedicate myself to just helping, assisting in, in his mission. Mm-hmm. The, a mission of just trying to, to wake up um, the souls in others. Mm-hmm to understand this universal principle beyond, beyond sectarian or egoistic conceptions of, of God, religion, or, or life itself. Uh, Swami, uh, I have uh, on many occasions been in Hare Krishna temples and also have heard 
uh, Hare Krishna chant in the streets and various places. And I always enjoy it very much. And, uh, and I, when I see the monks, uh, like yourself, chanting, uh, I, I, you can tell by their outer expressions that they are in a very special place of, it looks like happiness, bliss, whatever. And, and I'm uh, curious to hear if you can recollect what uh, your first experience was like when you heard the uh, Hare Krishna mantra being chanted uh, by the Hare Krishna monks. Well, in the book that I wrote, The Journey Home, I tell the story of how I first heard the Hare Krishna mantra, which is also called the Maha Mantra. And I didn't hear it at the Hare Krishna movement. I actually, it, it, was, it was given to me by what I believe was, was a very profound um, grace as I was fasting and sitting on a rock in the middle of the Ganges River in the Himalayas near Rishikesh. Um, after weeks of meditation, I heard in the current of Mother Ganga this beautiful mantra being sung, mm. and, and it really transformed my life, although I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what Krishna or Hare or Rama meant. <laughs> I just heard this Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. And I, it, it really moved me so deeply that I was meditating on that. And it was months and months later that I actually made the connection of what it meant. And, and in Vrindavan, I, I learned, you know, who is Krishna? What is the origin of this mantra? Hmm. How interesting. When you said you first heard it, I was hoping you were going to say you heard it of when Allen Ginsberg chanted it on William Buckley's talk show <laughs> <clears throat> in 1968. I, I remember that. I did see that, yeah. <laughs> But your story is much better and much more interesting. I, I somehow or other I missed that show. <laughs> I play the recording of it sometimes in my talks, and it, it always uh, gets a jolt out of the crowd. Um, maybe since you're you're on the Maha Mantra, a lot of people have heard it by now. Uh, that we probably many people old enough or heard it chanted in the streets back in, in the days, uh, and, and may have now heard it from any number of uh, kirtan uh, artists over the last uh, several years. Uh, and many people have asked me, so I'm going to relay the question to you. They want to know, what does Hari mean? How can you explain uh, it? There's <clears throat> Hari is the name of God. A name of Krishna or Vishnu. Hari means one who steals. It means one who steals our hearts by, by his all-attractive, all-beautiful, all-loving qualities. And Hare is a calling for Hara. Hara is the feminine aspect of God. Hmm. In 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 many of the various traditions, both in the East and West, there is, um, especially in the more mystical depths 
of their theology and philosophy, there's a conception of feminine divinity. And in India, it's a very, the male and female aspect of the divine are inseparable. Sita Ram, Radha Krishna, Lakshmi Narayan, Within the, within the cosmic context, Parvati and Shiva. So th- these are all different um, ways of, of addressing the same one truth, mm-hmm. that there's a male and the female aspect of God. The female aspect of God is the supreme mother of all living beings. The male aspect is the supreme father. And the love that they share for one another is the origin of all love in all of existence. And <clears throat> Hara is a name of that feminine potency who in my tradition we call Radha. And as the Divine Mother, she's the ultimate fountainhead or the source of grace, of compassion, of forgiveness. And it's through these, these gifts that we can actually awaken our true love for the divine or for God. So we first approach Hare. Hare means, O my supreme beloved mother, or O Radha. And Krishna means the all-attractive one, one who possesses complete, eternal beauty, knowledge, strength, fame, um, wealth, and humility and renunciation, all the qualities that attract us in life and all of the qualities that we would like to have to attract others, God has those in full forever. And whatever, just like a sun ray, is a little tiny qualitative part of the sun planet that gives light and you know, the qualities that we may possess or others that may possess that attract our hearts are like a little sun ray that are emanating from the ultimate source or God or Krishna, which would like the sun planet. So um, God is all attractive, and that's what Krishna means. Mm-hmm. And the name Rama means, Rama means pleasure or happiness mm-hmm. because when we reconnect with that source of pleasure within our heart or Rama, then we become, you know, truly happy. Mm-hmm. So, Swami so these I... are the three words of the mantra, Hare Krishna and Rama. Mm-hmm. Very good. Thank Very you. Uh, Swami, uh, one of the things that uh, interested me in our uh, discussions with sp- people on, uh, in, in regard to spirituality and especially people like yourselves that have de- devoted their full life, uh, entire lives to spiritual development, is it's not just about a, an internal journey uh, to gain a state of enlightenment, but it seems that uh, many times uh, people uh, like yourself get involved in, in activities to benefit others. And I, and I know that you're directly involved in a program that's run throughout India, and I think you, you feed uh, 1.2 million uh, school children every day uh, lunch, uh, in, throughout India, and you also uh, were involved in, uh, with the Hare Krishna movement of setting up a hospital uh, in, in India. Uh, why uh, is it that uh, 
people who develop spiritually in their own lives, which we often think of as an internal process, uh, tend to uh, seem to be motivated at some point uh, to uh, reach out and, and try to improve the lives of others. When, there, when there's an inner transformation, um, when we begin to come in contact with our own true essential nature and we discover our potential that the atma or the soul is beyond birth and it's beyond death and it, its true nature is unconditional, unmotivated frame or love for God. And that love, as we explained, when it's awakened, it naturally extends toward all beings. And we have this body, and we have this mind. And the body's temporary. The soul is forever. And the body's like a vehicle that we're riding in for some time. But in due course, it's going to grow old it's going to get diseased and it's going to die. That's inevitable. But while we have this body, it's a, it's a precious gift of God that could be used um, for, for divine purposes within this temporary world. The concept of yoga is harmony, union, to actually, um, so that the body and the mind are in harmony with the soul. And then it's like the soul becomes the driver of the, of, the, of the car of the body and the mind. And we use it for divine purposes. And that's called seva. Seva means service to God that has no selfishness or arrogance. Service to God that is, is genuinely from the heart. And when we, when we recognize that all living beings are the children of our beloved, then to be an instrument of God's compassion, of God's grace, in whatever we speak and whatever we do, becomes the very foundation of seva. And <clears throat> in this sense, you know, to, to show compassion to the body, to providing the types of services that you have um, explained just now, to, to give service to the mind by giving appreciation, by giving encouragement, by giving direction, and by giving service to the soul, by actually helping people to awaken their own true spiritual potential. So seva is for the body, for the mind, and for the soul. Very good. Swami, um, you are uh, a very articulate and passionate um, uh, proponent of the bhakti path, the path of devotion, and, and your uh, new book that's coming out soon. We're recording this on April 25th, and you're about to launch your uh, next book, The Journey Within, whose subtitle is Exploring the Path of Bhakti. <clears throat> I, I had a chance to read it, and I, I was deeply impressed by um, how uh, well you explained the path of bhakti and the, the love that obviously went into it. Perhaps 
Uh, many of our listeners will be familiar with the, the, the paths of bhakti and karma yoga and gyan yoga and, and raj yoga and so forth. Um, not everybody is a bhakta. People have different inclinations. Uh, maybe you could say a few words about how for people on a spiritual path who might not be inclined to um, devote them, their majority of their sadhana to uh, bhakti, how the principles of bhakti and the uh, methods of bhakti can inform other paths as well. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. You're so insightful. <laughs> the, <laughs> the concept of bhakti is naturally integrated in, in, in all types of spirituality and in all paths of yoga. Um, bhakti means, in its fullest sense, unconditional, unmotivated, pure love for the Supreme, who, you know, in our tradition we call Krishna, God, Rama. Um, <clears throat> and the path of bhakti is the type of lifestyle and type of spiritual practice that's specifically aimed at awakening that dormant love that's within our hearts which inspires the type of seva we're speaking about both to God and in this world. Um, <clears throat> there was a great saint named Bhaktivinoda Thakur. He lived in the latter part of the 19th century and he had 10 children and his wife Bhagavati together were truly saints. You know, tens and thousands of villagers, during, this was in India and Bengal during the British regime, you know, the British viceroys and, and, and lords would come to him for guidance. He was a, a judge or an advocate in, a, in, in the magistrate in the court system. And even swamis and, and sadhus and yogis, renunciates, would come for guidance and blessings from him. And he was a person who we would, I could compare it to what Jesus says in the Bible, to be in this world but not of this world. Mm -hmm. he, he understood that, and this is a basic principle of bhakti, that in whatever field of life we can apply, that we're not the proprietors of, our, of what we have, we're the caretakers. Whatever we're given, our wealth, our abilities, our intelligence, our resources, these are all sacred gifts that somehow or other we have and they're, it's the property of God, and we're caretakers, so we should use them in harmony with the compassion of God in our lives. And to, to, to live according to that principle, whether we're in business or politics 
or education or farming or engineering or whether we're little swamis like me. You know, we apply this principle, and, and that's, that's bhakti. Mm-hmm. Uh, Swami, uh, I, I have a two-part question. One is that uh, in many traditions, even Christian tradition, uh, Buddhist tradition, chant, there is chanting, uh, and it's of a devotional nature. Uh, would one expect to get similar results as, uh, as you have gotten from your ch- chanting the Maha Mantra of the Hare Krishna. And the other, the other question, the other part to this question is, we have people listen to our podcasts all over the world. Suppose somebody is in some area of the world where there is no Hare Krishna temple. They're just sort of on their own. Maybe there aren't any spiritual communities. But they are very moved by what you're saying, and they want to uh, experience uh, the, the, the joy and the benefits that come from devotional chanting, from bhakti, uh, what would you recommend there? So first, first, uh, how you would compare the different traditions, and then where someone might, what somebody might do if there isn't uh, a temple available to them. This is a universal principle that you're speaking, Dennis, in in many spiritual traditions throughout history and throughout the world, is the power of transcendental sound, spiritual sound vibration. The chants, prayers, hymns, um, recitation of texts, these, these divine sounds actually can awaken our inherent spiritual nature. And the word mantra, man means the mind, and triate means to liberate, to free. So mantra means to, f- to liberate the mind, to clean the mind, just like a mirror that's covered with dust. You can't see who you are because of so much dust. But if you clean the mirror, you see yourself for who you are. So similarly, you know, it's the soul, it's the atma that's seeing through the mind. And when the mind is covered with the dust of so much misconceptions and selfishness and arrogance and greed and all of these things, we identify ourselves only as that. I'm white or I'm black or I'm red or I'm yellow or I'm brown or I'm a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Jew or a Jain or a Sikh or a Parsi or a Christian or, or I'm from the East or the West, we're identifying with all of these designations that are changeable, you know, from one life to another. Mm-hmm. But when we understand, when our mind is clean, we see ourselves for who we are. I'm not my body, but I'm in my body. <laughs> mm-hmm. And in that conception, when the mind is clean, then the divine qualities of the soul naturally reflect through the mind, through our words, through our actions, and through every aspect of our life. And the mantra is meant to actually clean the mind so that we can actually anandam buddhivaratana, so that we can find the true ananda or happiness that we're seeking and share that happiness in whatever we do, wherever we are. And that's what a mantra is for. And this is what transcendental sound vibration can do. It's, it's so simple, but it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. It's like an example, 
um, with a satellite TV. When you press a particular button, you access a particular frequency. And you press one button and you're seeing a football game from Texas and you see, press another button and, you're, and there's a soap opera from New York City. And you press another button and there's you know, news from, from Syria. So all of these things, all of these vibrations are everywhere. But what we access is what we're going to actually experience. So the, the chanting of these hymns tune us into the frequency of grace, tune us into the frequency of the divine. And there are different levels and different varieties of divine vibration also. And different spiritual traditions um, help through their chanting and through, their, and through spiritual practices tune us into a frequency of a certain aspect of the divine. And in bhakti, we're especially trying to tune in. The mantras are designed to tune in to the grace that awakens the love within the heart. Very good. <clears throat> Swami, one of the chapters in your uh, new book, The Journey Within, is titled Growing Through Adversity. Um, many of our listeners, of course, will uh, have gone through and currently are going through different kinds of adversity in their lives. What, what advice would you give them? What is the essential message of that chapter? It's a very deep subject, Phil. Yeah. Adversity comes upon everyone. In my own little life, I travel to many places and I meet billionaires and I meet homeless people in the streets. I meet people in the villages who are little farmers and I meet, you know, entertainers who, uh, you know, have so much fame and so much um, wealth and power. Um, but no matter who we are or what status we may achieve in our life, suffering and adversity is inevitable. This world is a place where there's inevitable struggle. And, you know, we can, we can, they may, those struggles may be packaged in different ways but they come to all of us. And really the art of, of yoga, the art of you know, true religion is to recognize how in adversities, how in struggles, there's an opportunity to grow. There's an opportunity to gain wisdom. And especially there's an opportunity while striving with all of our power to overcome what we must overcome, we humble ourselves to a higher power beyond ourselves because we understand that ultimately I need that higher power. I need that connection. And in, in, in our prayer, in our spiritual practice, and in especially in keeping the company of people you know, who have these higher connections, who inspire us, who enlighten us, we can truly grow like in no other situation when we are faced 
um, with adversity, mm-hmm. and when when we and and we respond with this understanding. Right. Swami, uh, that was beautifully put, and I want to thank you for for taking the time to speak with us today. Bill, do you have any final uh, comments uh, or questions? And I and I also wanted to mention, of course, uh, we recommend people uh, get the book. Uh, Radhanath Swami's uh, latest book, The Journey Within. Phil? Um, I know you have some uh, events coming up while you're still in America. Uh, If there's any you'd like to call our listeners' attention to, or maybe, uh, because there's so many, uh, you could tell them where to find your schedule on on your website. I don't really know. I just kind of go where I'm... Yeah. All right, I'll tell you. We'll, we'll post the website up on our podcast. <laughs> That's I'll tell in them. Moment. It's yeah. com, and you'll, you'll find uh, all that you want to know about Radhanath Swami, his work, his books, uh, his upcoming events, and... Uh, uh, probably more than he even knows is there himself. <laughs> yes, and, and we uh, uh, again want to thank you and uh, hope you can come back on and speak to us again sometime soon. It's been an absolute pleasure. Our guest today, Radhanath Swami, thank you. It, it has been an absolute pleasure to be in your company, Dennis and Phil, and I'm I'm deeply moved to have this opportunity to speak to your to your beautiful listeners, and all I can say is I'm very humbled and very grateful. Any final words to our our listeners you'd like to add? <laughs> um, within us, we are. We are parts of, of God. We are parts of the Supreme. And there's such beauty inherent within us. And um, I would just like to cite one incident. One of my dear friends, a lady, she was in her last stages of cancer. She was in London. And she had, I think, five children. And she was really an activist her whole life. And she, you know, she was paralyzed. She, her husband had to clean her excrement from her. She had to be fed with tubes. And it was, you know, so demeaning in one sense for such an active, powerful person to have to go end their lives like this. But she smiled. I was with her at her deathbed the day before she passed from the world. She smiled and turned to her husband and said, even now, I have limitless relevance in my life because, because God loves me. She used the word Krishna. Krishna loves me. And she said, and nothing can take that love away from me, not even death. She was so happy. She was smiling. And she said, but I can't think myself better than anyone else because God loves everyone. She connected to that love. And we all have that opportunity in whatever tradition we may follow. We all have that opportunity to connect to that love and, and shine that love. 
Thank, thank you, you very, very much. Thank, thank you so very much. What a beautiful way to end our talk, and, and we look forward to having you back with us, Swami. Thank you so much. Thank you.